In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, the vacationing OSR Anchorite adept, podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. Still digging out? Well, not really. We had about, I don't know, five or six inches of snow here, and it was kind of crazy. Got sleet, hail, some thunder, snow all at the same time, or within the same storm. And when I was out shoveling, I... I noticed that the snow had kind of a weird kind of orange or uh, tan cast to it and then went back in and uh, one of the meteorologists was talking about how people were reporting this and that it was, they had determined that it was actually dust that had been picked up by the storm from Texas, which is uh, in a big drought stage or something right now and uh, got whipped up into the upper atmosphere and rode along the jet stream or the storm front or whatever and dropped down here in Minnesota. So that's weird, but also kind of, I don't know, it gives you kind of an idea for uh, some kind of scenario or something in a, in a game campaign, something getting picked up and swept to a, a different area hundreds of miles away, maybe some kind of color out of space kind of thing but localized, or more localized. Anyway, today's topic is going to be derived from the Ray Otis Challenge. He and Spike Pitt were kind of talking about how it would be cool to have some topic that they threw out there that would be um, bandied about by as many of the OSR anchorites as want to participate But before I get to that, I had a few call-ins from Froth and the aforementioned Colin Green of Spike Pit. So here you go. Hey, Rob, it's Froth listening to your first uh, game design podcast. Really enjoyed it. Try to fit all this in one minute. First, I thought you had a lot of uh, thoughtful things to say about running historical games that I appreciated. That could be a whole topic in and of itself. Second, when you were talking about the getting to the mechanics i was like i wonder if he's gonna use that d12 because i remember when he talked about the shunned neglected d12 so i was happy to hear about that while i'm already at 30 seconds third i like when there's degree of success mechanics but they're seldom seldomly uh implemented very well because it's the kind of thing you need some guidelines but if it gets too granular it feels like a bunch of extra rules and it becomes harder for the GM to run at the table. So be, I, I usually like it just kind of a rough feel kind of thing as far as it goes. You know, beat it by three or more, it's a little bit better, something like that. Gosh, I'm already running out of time. Good stuff, man. See ya. Thanks for the call, Froth. Glad you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, I, I can't make my own game and not use the D12. we got to dust off those D12s and use them, right? Historical gaming, yeah, you're right, that could be a whole different podcast all on its own, and I think that's the situation I'm going to find myself in a lot with uh, this 
this game design series is there's going to be a lot of um, streams to cross that could be a whole podcast episode on their own and, and maybe it will turn out to be that way maybe as I'm debating different aspects of game design that will just become a whole podcast but I don't know I'm I'm hoping this is going to be an interesting process for people but I could see people not being into it either too if I if I get too involved in the nitty-gritty that might turn off some people some people might like me I'd really dig hearing about um actual mechanics and how they work and stuff and it'd be really interesting hearing someone that's an actual game designer someone like Ray Otis or something talking about um his process for designing a new game but and your point about like a granularity and uh or not granularity a a degree of success within a, a dice roll mechanic being either too vague or too uh involved and i totally get your point right now the working idea I have, at least for an attack roll, is that you'd roll 2d12 and the uh, the number above 13 would be the amount of damage you'd do. And armor would increase that target number or armor class like it does in D&D. So if you had some kind of heavy armor, maybe that would add four to that range. Well, see, the other thing I have to worry about is the whole um, uh, bell curve of the of the aspect of this die rolling mechanic, so i got to be careful with uh, pluses and minuses because that really impacts more on a bell curve than it does on a linear progression. So I think I might have the highest armor be just like three for heavy armor. Uh, but in that case, uh, if for any roll exceeding 16, that would be the amount of uh, damage you'd do. And what I need to figure out is how I'm going to work weapon type into that. If that just is a an additional modifier, you know, a plus one or a minus one or nothing, or, or if I have a ceiling of damage that each weapon can do, and then doubles, if you roll doubles, you'd uh, just double that number. That's kind of what I'm leaning with right now. It might evolve from that, but uh, that's kind of where I'm going. And as far as other aspects, I'd probably work into within each spell have uh, a result for um, a fumble or a rolling a double um, unsuccessfully or a double successfully. Um, Or I might just have a table for different things that has if you roll double ones double twos double threes this is what happens in that within that task so within spell casting uh, if you really fail maybe the spell affects you or some target you don't intend and if it's really successful maybe you know maybe it is uh, permanent or on a lesser success maybe it's uh, uh, gives your opponent disadvantage on the saving throw or the duration is doubled or damage is doubled or something like that so but I see your point and thanks for the calls and I hope I get more calls like Froth uh, talking about this process as I go through it because I really do 
want to have a conversation about it and welcome feedback from any of my listeners. Hey, Robsy, Spike Pit here. A lot to say following your last episode. I thought it was awesome. You covered so much ground. Potions and alchemy, I'll be very interested to hear what you do with that. I think that make a really great topic. Also, the humans and demi-humans min-maxing debate goes on. However, in 5e, they do offer a plus one to every stat for humans as a, a means of incentivizing that race. Finally, your thoughts on design. I would love to take a, a book or something that I really liked and build my uh, design or game just based on a book. A bit like Ray did with um, his treatment of The Hobbit in the game There and Back Again. But super interested to hear what you do with this series on your design and its evolution. Hey Colin, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. I'm glad you're getting into the idea of me talking about a game design in this podcast series. And I think the avenue you'd like to go down is a really interesting one too, basing a role-playing game on a favorite novel. Um, I think it would be really cool to have something like a book or a, a game based around the Black Company series from Glenn Cook or his Inspector Garrett uh, series. And like some of the games I really like Stormbringer based on the Moorcock books and their its derivatives. Uh, there's also a Quorum and a Hawkmoon RPG that Chaosium put out. And if you are just specifically targeting um, a known game world, you can really capture the feel of that game a lot more than trying to shoehorn a, a more generic system into running that. There's drawbacks, of course. You... Uh, with using any IP, um, some people will either be unfamiliar with it and not really get it, or perhaps not like it. Um, but I think it would be, in general, I think those types of games can be really interesting, and I'd love to hear about what you might do, what book you'd select. And potions, yeah, definitely one of the topics I'd like to get into it in, in some future episode I've got I feel like I've got about a hundred different topics rolling around in my mind so sorry guys I'll probably keep doing this for as long as I I don't know as long as I still have a voice and anchor still around and the human demi-human thing yeah well I feel like I'm bashing 5e all the time and i I feel a little bit bad about it, but it's, uh, Colin, you alluded to it in one of your episodes that you have kind of a natural suspicion or contrariness when it comes to things that are really popular. And I have that kind of personality trait too. And I think that's part of my issue with 5e is it's so ever present and and I just don't think it's that good of a game. But uh, as, to your point, um, yes, they do uh, give humans plus one on every attribute. And I thought, 
initially, hey, this is pretty cool. Um, but it's really not all that. Especially, we were using the, uh, the standard array to determine your attributes. So you'd just take a 15, a 14, a 13, a 12, 10, and 8, and arrange them to taste. That plus 1 only really gives you something on the odd numbers, because the way 5e works, the actual attribute number doesn't mean anything. It's the modifier that the attribute um, gives you. So if, you're, if you have a 16, you get plus 3 or whatever it is. But, um, but a, f a 15 is the same as a 14, and a 13 is the same as a 12. So that plus 1 to a 12, bumping it up to a 13, okay, it gets you closer to a 14 and going up, but at the moment, it does nothing for you. Whereas in a game like BX, where you have uh, situations where you're rolling versus an attribute trying to roll equal to or under, kind of like Black Hack, I think where Black Hack got the idea, um... Every little bit helps. It gives you a 5% better chance to succeed on something. So the human in 5e, if you're not using the variant with getting a free feat, and I really don't like feats, so I wasn't using it, um, you get plus one on all your attributes and an extra language. Okay? So you basically get an extra plus one on two attributes. Now the example I use, the you being a dwarf wizard. If you choose the dwarf your constitution scores increases by two. You get dark vision. You get dwarven resilience, so you have advantage on saving throws against poison, and further, you have resistance against poison damage. You get combat, dwarven combat training, so you're proficient with battle axe, hand axe, throwing hammer, and war hammer. And the battle axe and war hammer are versatile weapons. If you use them two-handed, they do a d10 of damage, so a really good weapon. Uh, further, you get tool proficiency. You get proficiency with the artisan tools of your choice. Smiths, brewers, supplies, or mason's tools. Stone cutting, whenever you make an intelligence history check related to the origin of stonework, you are considered proficient in the history skill and add your add double your proficiency bonus to the check. Kind of handy to have in dungeon situations. And you speak common and dwarvish. Uh, and then further, you get to choose a subrace. If I were a wizard, I'd choose Mountain Dwarf. Your strength goes up by two, and you have proficiency with light and medium armor. So you can start the game maybe wearing scale mail or something and get a 14 AC plus your dex bonus up to two. So you could, if you put your, if you're min-maxing, which is the scenario I'm kind of beefing against here, if I were a Dwarven Wizard, I'd put my 8 in strength, you get bumped by 2 there, so you have no penalty. You put, uh, like, your 10, probably, in constitution, that gets bumped by 2 to a 12, so you get plus 1 on your hit points. You put your probably 14 or 15, you put those in dex and intelligence. So you still have a plus 2 in in intelligence and in dex, so that dex helps you with your AC, so now you're looking at a 16 AC, better than a mage casting mage armor on themselves. And you've got proficiency with it, you don't even need that spell. And with your 
Warhammer two-handed, you uh, are doing as much damage as any of the cantrips in uh, in hand-to-hand, so you can maybe allocate those cantrips for more utilitarian things rather than an attack cantrip, or I'd still take an attack cantrip to have a range kind of damage thing. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, I think, and you get dark vision, I think you're just head and shoulders above what the human wizard would be. Um, so I think that's broken, and I could probably make the same case for the elf doing that, to say nothing of dragonborn and tieflings and all that stuff, which I don't use in my games, but, uh, anyway, enough 5e bashing, and let's go to the main topic! Yikes, I've already gone on for about 15 minutes, I gotta (laughs) cut down on the amount of time I spend on replies, I think, but Ray Otis, on his Plundergrounds, I think yesterday, had a structure for a episode, and he asked the other OSR anchorites to follow in suit and do a, uh, an episode based on this. And it's the theme of something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. And he extended the last to be, could be something out of the blue in gaming. So, for me, the old is Tulan of the Isles, Riverport Nexus of Riches and Adventure, Adventure, Adventure. This came out in 1987 from Chaosium, and it's by Raymond Feist, Stephen Abrams, April Abrams of uh, Midkemia Press. And yes, that's the Raymond Feist, I believe, that wrote the Midkemia books, The Magician uh, apprentice and master and Silverthorn and all those. And this is detailing one of the towns in his Midkemia setting. Um, they also did one called, uh, for Kars, which I do not have, sadly. I remember seeing them both at Schinders here in Minneapolis and picking up the Toulon of the Isles because I wanted something, uh, on a river. And this is a, has a really cool isometric map of a city that has part of it, about half of it is on a shore. And then there's five little islands that also have parts of the town on them. And a section of the river that's kind of cordoned off by buoys. And that's the part that's dredged or is deep enough for shipping from the the sea to come in so larger ocean going vessels can sail right up to the dock on one of these islands but then beyond it's a river so it's you have to have smaller craft to bring goods further up river um, but it's a it's a pretty cool map uh, three color map just blue and kind of a brown and white rather than a black and white and the setting itself is system neutral they kind of have it statted out a little bit for um, more like a rune quest kind of game system, but I think they make allusions to uh, some D and D stuff too. But it would be easy enough to make to convert to any of your, you know, your favorite fantasy adventure game system. The name structures are uh, more along the lines of a English kind of setting. Um, 
there's a the theme of the town kind of has is that there's a a feud there's kind of a capulet versus montague kind of thing but it's the mangroms versus the wood hues and you don't have to have you know obviously you don't have to have that part of your setting but i think it it's a, a nice trope to to give a little flavor to a town having a, a rivalry between two powerful extended families um it gives a lot of good ideas for what you're using the town for, what the what the intentions of the characters are, if they're using it just for the base or passing through, buying and selling, even looting and pillaging. Uh, they do a little detail on the surrounding area and talk about some of the things you might find there, um, including a, a nearby village of Hoxley, which they also detail. Uh, this book goes into, I think, every building they describe in the town. Uh, it's definitely a more low-power setting. There's only a few demi-humans that you run into in the town. I think there's a couple of dwarves. I don't remember if there's an elf or not. Uh, I don't recall seeing any elves. Um, and it's been so long since I've read those uh, Raymond Feist books that I don't even remember if there were elves in the setting. Anyway, like I said, this is, uh, I could not find it on uh, drive through so I don't know if there are any PDFs floating around out there. Oh, there's, uh, there's some good random encounter tables, too, for, um, for the actual city and for the village and the surrounding areas. Um, a lot of good stuff in there. I'd highly recommend this if you can track it down, but I think it probably is going to be on the second-hand market. Something new is uh, the most recent kind of gaming thing I got is the Arbiter of Worlds by Alexander McCreese, who is the uh, man behind Adventure Conqueror King system. And this is kind of done in the mode of the old Gary Gygax uh, I think it was, was it called Game Mastery or something? Mastering the game, maybe? But this is just a primer for Game Masters and his point of view. And Alexander Macris, if you don't know, he has a, a, a legal background. Uh, I think he is a, an actual, uh, worked as a lawyer. So he has a really analytical um, point of view and, and, uh, lays this book out in a really systematic, analytical point of view. I think it is a really good example of what DMing in an old-school fashion is about, and he kind of pushes back against some of the advice that um, has entered into, the, in, into some gaming circles about the more story arc... DM as novelist rather than DM as chronicler. I don't know. I think that's kind of how when I think of storytelling in games, I'm not talking. I'm. I don't think of the DM as like laying out a plot and and the characters just follow along. That I see the story is developing out emergent. What happens at the table, and you're all just kind of telling the history of the game. You're chronicling what happens in the game. But he puts forward that the um, that the game master has uh, 
four primary roles in in the game. And those roles are judge, world builder, adversary, and storyteller. And that's in sequence of importance. So he is putting forward that your most important role is, is, uh, as a game master is judge, then world builder, then adversary, and then storyteller. And it's a pretty quick read. It's about 140 pages or something. You can get the PDF or the soft cover like I did um, on Amazon. I think it's an Amazon exclusive. It's well worth a read. I thought it was very good. Um, I don't know if I really learned a whole lot, but it it um, expresses my views on game mastering much better than I'd probably ever do. So um, pick it up if you're interested in, in seeing what a uh, old school DM mindset kind of thing is and uh, better than anything you'll hear on, on this podcast. All right, something borrowed. Well, that could be anything because frankly, what in gaming, what isn't borrowed? Um, almost everything I do is, uh, either someone else's work or inspired by someone else's work, whether that's an actual game or movie or novel or myth, it's, it's hard to come up with anything that's original. But what I'm going to do is a different twist. If you haven't listened to Gothridge Manor, which you should be, you should be listening to that all the time, but Colin Green called in to Tim at Gothridge Manor and out of the blue kind of said that whenever he hears Tim, he's picturing Tico Torres, who is the drummer from uh, Bon Jovi, which I, I had no idea. But anyway, and Tim thought that was hilarious. And Colin thinks it's hilarious too, because he doesn't know why he thinks of Tico Torres whenever he hears Tim talking. But it got me thinking that I think we all probably do this, or I don't, I don't know, I do it. Whenever I just hear someone's voice, I kind of picture someone. And it's usually just either someone I know or someone that's a celebrity of sorts, whether it's a musician or an actor or whatever, that either sounds like the person or just has an attitude similar to the person and maybe just as a character that they've portrayed. And uh, and I will be thinking of that when that person talks, I'm thinking of of that celebrity or acquaintance of mine in turn talking to me. And, uh, so I thought I'd just give out some of the, the, <laughs> the images I have of, uh, some of the OSR anchorites. And unfortunately I know what a lot of you look like because like on the audio dungeon, there were some uh, pictures going around from Gary Khan. So I know what Ray Otis and Cody M and Larry Hamilton um, look like, and then I've seen Hobbs on, on video, so I know what he looks like, and Colin has a picture of himself on, as his, uh, <coughs> excuse me, his, uh, for his podcast, so I know what Colin looks like, and I know what Logan Howard looks like, too, because when he, he has, um, uh, I think a picture of himself, I'm assuming, as his, uh, his little, what do you call that in online stuff? I don't know. His his logo, for lack of a better word, when he favorited my podcast uh, 
So, but anyway, so the other people that I listened to, Tim, Tim uh, from Gothridge Manor, I don't know why, but I think of Josh Brolin. And when uh, Tim is, after Colin called in and with the Tico Torres thing, Tim was saying, I'm bald as a cute. Uh, cue ball, so I don't know why he thinks of, of that. So now I think of of Tim Shorts as being a bald Josh Brolin. Uh, Joe the Lawyer. I, <laughs> I always thought of him for some reason as uh, Walter Shepchak, the, the character that John Goodman played in The Big Lebowski, in part because I suppose the profanity and stuff, but also because he said he's kind of a big guy and stuff and uh, a Falstaffian kind of figure or whatever. And but because he's talking about smoking weed and stuff all the time too, I I picture him more as as uh, Walter Shepchak with Bob Ross hair and wearing a Andrew Dice Clay leather jacket. Um, Froth I picture as Tom Petty. Uh, it's that kind of southern, laid back accent and stuff. I don't know. Just think of Tom Petty when I hear Froth. Che Webster, I think of as Clive Owen. He just kind of sounds like Clive Owen to me. Um, Arfed, Colin's brother, I assume probably has some resemblance to Colin, but I always think of him as Simon Pegg from like the, uh, um, oh, what is that zombie movie that he did? Anyway, he's kind of a English comic actor and maybe director and stuff. Um, and then who else? Um, Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets sounds like my brother's brother-in-law, Gordy. So I picture um, this guy Gordy as, as Rich. Um, but it, I just think it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm sure we all kind of do it to some degree where we we picture, like I said, someone when we hear, all we hear is their voice and we don't know what they look like. And I think it would be hilarious uh, what people think who I look like or whatever. And something blue, well, I could go out of the blue, but I have more of a literal mind, so I, I immediately started thinking blue. And the first thing that popped into my mind was blue dragons. Eh, boring. Then I thought Fiend Folio, not so boring, one of my favorite monster books. But what I really settled on was in the Fiend Folio, the monster, the Zvart. Under X, X-V-A-R-T. And these are little small humanoids that have bright blue skin and orange eyes. And they are described in here as wearing loose cloth doublets. They're kind of like a goblin. They have an ACS 7, hit dice 1 minus 1. They're chaotic evil, average intelligence. Um, But they also are described as having, uh, what, 5% of the group encounter will have... Um, magic user powers. So they'll have magic users, a first or second level magic user. So they have some uh, magical abilities. And in the Wikipedia page, it was described as someone in a white dwarf creating a race that was loosely based on the Svartalves, Svartalfi. I can't remember how it's pronounced, but it's the the Norse kind of black uh or dark elves. And the picture in the Fiend Folio has always killed me. It's this 
kind of spindly, scrawny looking thing with a giant head and giant feet for the body. And the head is this kind of bulbous, misshapen, upturned nose, big pointy ears, um, deep set eyes with a, a bristle of hair coming out under a slouch cap and uh, kind of a, a ragged, scraggly beard, torn doublet, and these big clunky looking shoes on their huge feet. And they kind of look like senior citizen shoes with, uh, with the uh, Velcro kind of fastenings on them. And he's holding a little sword that has a kind of a jagged tip on it. Kind of, but kind of comic, but I don't know, but still looks a little uh, scary. And it says they delight in taking prisoners for torture or ransom or both. Um, and they've been known to assist or be assisted by were-rats in their endeavors. And their lair is usually an underground cavern or deep in the heart of a forest. And I remember in the, I think the second version of Greyhawk, they just, uh, they listed their deity, Razavort, who is also a god of rats and bats and were-rats in addition to the Zvarts. And uh, I'm not sure what later lore, if they disappeared after, I think they were in second edition too, but uh, I don't know if they disappeared in third and later editions. I don't remember seeing them in the Monster Manual in fifth ed. And, uh, but I like to use these little guys once in a while. Uh, I think it's fun to use rather than the standard orc and goblin and hobgoblin and gnolls and all that stuff. I like to use the, some of the humanoids uh, out of out of Fiend Folio. I think Fiend Folio is... In fact, I think it would be really cool to have a campaign where the only monsters you used were out of the Fiend Folio, except for maybe, like, the classics, like the... from the original Monster Manny, like dragons, the undead, uh, like canthropes and giants or whatever. You take those, plus the Fiend Folio, and that's all you use. So instead of goblins and stuff, you've got Zvarts and Gibberlings and Norkers and Quaggoths and... I don't know, I think that would be kind of a fun uh, campaign setting to have. And, uh, oh, Fire Newts, too, Fire Newts. Anyway, that's my Ray Otis challenge, so thanks, Ray, for bringing this up. I know Logan Howard has also done an episode devoted to this, and I hope to hear more from some of the other anchorites. Uh, Keith, my, uh, my friend Keith, pointed out that the Atlantis stuff is available on drive-thru. It's not the same version as the Bard Games version. It's owned by, the IP is owned by someone else now, and it's called Atlantis the Second Age. And the PDFs are only five bucks, so maybe check those out. But reading the reviews, it sounds like it's not the same game system as what I was describing. It's Bard Games went on to do another set of games called Talislanta after the Atlanteans uh, series. And it's based more on that game system, which I always thought was a little bit really, really vague. Um, I have a lot of the, uh, well, a fair amount of the Talislanta stuff that first came out, and it's wild and woolly, that's for sure. There's Their tagline was, no elves, and there aren't any elves. And the It's certainly varied and imaginative, but I don't know if how well someone other than the, the person that dreamed all this stuff could run it. And the game system, yeah, is really weird. So I don't know if the Atlantis Second Age is uh, 
is good or not. It did get good reviews, so and it's only five bucks, so maybe check it out. If nothing else, I think there's a map of the Atlantean world that looks like it might be the same as the one that was in the, the books I described, and I believe it's free, so check those out, and thanks, Keith, for pointing that out to me, and thanks to Froth and Colin for their calls today and for everyone listening, and don't go down in a heap.